Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We are this type of people. That's what, that's what characterizes us, is a man who is the king who is crucified. This is our boast this morning. So I thank you for preaching to one another through song and enjoying this time as we worship our King. Turn to James. We'll be in James 1. Specifically today, we'll look at verses 9 through 11. We'll start, though, by reading James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, so we get the context and understanding how we're building up to this passage today. So we'll read, and then we'll pray, and we'll get started. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wave. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. God, today, him we proclaim. Jesus Christ we proclaim. Warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would make us perfect, complete, whole in Christ through the folly, the foolishness of the preaching of the word. We have nothing to offer to you. We do not come as though if we bring the right things, you will accept us. Our only boast is in Jesus Christ. So we come boldly before you asking that you might give us faith and that you might give us wisdom to live the life that you have given to us that is to be toward you. I pray this morning, God, that you would be working in each heart that is here, those who know you and love you and need to hear your word so that they may be more made like Jesus Christ. And for those who do not know you, whether they hate you whether they're indifferent or whether they are fooled into thinking that they know you, would you work in their hearts so that they might see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one crucified and the one exalted? 
We praise your name this morning, asking that you might come be with your people, that your word might go forth from this time to our week, to our day, to our relatives, to those we work with, that we would see the truth of the gospel through James' few verses here, and that we might glory in Jesus Christ, in whom crucified. We ask your blessing on your word today, and we ask for hearts that will respond in faith. You are the giver. You are the one we look to, the author and perfecter of our faith. We cling to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Today, we are introduced to the third major theme in James's letter. We started from an introduction. Um, then we got into the first two, the last two weeks. The first one being that of steadfastness. Then we moved on to wisdom. This week, we're at the third main theme that we're going to see throughout the book of James, which is partiality. It's an old word, or we would say probably favoritism. And what we're really looking at today is something even a little bit more basic than that. We're looking at the divide between the rich and the poor, and we're seeing how this leads then to favoritism. The introduction is limited in that we aren't going to be wowed and deeply moved to act on this sin of partiality today. James is going to begin by fighting some common assumptions held by the people in these churches. It, what it means to be rich or poor and how one should act in that state. He is going, <coughs> excuse me, he is going to be laying the groundwork for his arguments concerning partiality or favoritism as he gets on in the book. What he says here will provide the springboard then for the conversation that we're about to eventually have about judging one another according to our material possessions and our status. James approaches us with a clarifying look then at reality, at real reality, not the stuff that we can touch and feel and see around us. But he is giving us a picture into what is actually real. He is showing us this today. And he commands us then to act like Christians. Let's talk about the context for a moment here as we get started. We've begun, again, like I said, by looking at steadfastness in verses 2 through 4. Then last week we were introduced to the concept of wisdom in 5 through 8. Now we're moving on to this discussion to the rich and the poor and the grounds for partiality. If you remember last week, we asked the question, what do trials, steadfastness, wholeness, and pure joy, verses 2 through 4, have to do with wisdom, 5 through 8? Uh, we rightly wanted to know if there is some sort of an appropriate connection between these two ideas. Or is this just a new, but important, but a, a new topic that James is getting into? After showing a few connections, we showed that these topics were connected and that what we needed to do was see this as a way for us to see life the way that God sees it so that we can rightly believe that these various trials we found in verse 2 through 4 are pure joy. We need a perspective of reality that no human being can give to us. What we actually need is wisdom. And thus, he asks in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. <coughs> the question is still appropriate then about the connection piece. We started with steadfastness, transitioned into wisdom. Now we're talking about the rich and the poor. We should still ask the question, is there a connection here or is he beginning a new topic? Why is he doing this? The short answer here is yes, there is a connection between the two. 
right to our opening context. And normally I jump right into talking about that and give you an idea why that's connected. However, this week it will be most helpful for us to go through the first two parts of these verses, understand the content, and I think it will help us to see all of a sudden how this fits into our context, how it actually follows these previous paragraphs. That being said, we'll do this. We'll show verse 9 through 11, and we'll see how it fits in. We'll walk through the text. We'll explain it, ask some very important questions, explain those, the answers to those. Then what will happen is we'll see how it's relevant to us. We'll bring us back to ask how that does fit into the context then and see where James has been taking us so far. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at verse 9. We'll start there today. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Three questions right off the bat we should be asking. Who is this lowly brother? Second question, what manner are we talking about when we say boast? And the third question is, what is his exaltation? What does that mean? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. First one then, who is this lowly brother? I had, um, there's an older, very kind gentleman I used to work with at at a previous place For the sake of anonymity, we'll call him Mr. Williams. Mr. Williams was a faithful servant of God, and he got the nickname Brother Williams. He's a Southern gentleman, um, but everyone called him Brother Williams. I mean, even like the little kids called him Brother Williams. The reason was is because anyone that he knew would be a Christian that was usually male, he would come alongside and call them Brother so-and-so. He said, Brother Glenn, Brother Townsend, Brother Chris. He would roll straight into my workplace and say, Hey, Brother Chris, I have a, I have a question for you. And so it just rolled off his tongue. That's the way he spoke, as though that we, were, we were his close brother. Now, why do I bring this up? I think Brother Williams was of the same mindset as Pastor James here. Or what, what Brother Williams would probably say as Brother James. They understood and called people out as what they were in Christ, which is a brother. If you look and if you've read through James, you're going to see that he uses this term 20 different times to refer to those who are Christian brothers. He is not writing a family Christmas letter out to like his close family and they happen to all be boys. That's not what he's doing. He's not talking about brothers familially. What he's talking about, that doesn't matter specifically to our context. Rather, he's talking about Christian brothers. When we see the word brother, we understand it then to be a Christian brother. What about this lowly part? We talk about lowly brother. Um, You can probably guess, but this is simply a way to say that this is a person of little significance in the world's evaluation. They are of humble or poor or lowly circumstance. They are not considered to be rich or powerful or any of these things. And if you read on to verse 10, it kind of helps you see the opposite side, right? There's a contrast there between (coughs) the lowly and the rich. So specifically, what we're talking about is a poor Christian, someone who is lowly in the eyes of the world. So this takes to the lowly part, (coughs) the lowly part, lowly brother part. But what of this question about boasting? What does it mean to boast? A lowly brother is supposed to let the lowly brother boast. On the surface, we kind of want to explain it away by saying, well, this isn't really boasting, not like sinful, prideful boasting. It's probably like strong language for rejoicing or something like that. 
Well, the context, if you remember back to verse 2, certainly does refer to rejoicing, count it all joy, reckon, reckon or consider these things joy. But James uses a different word here. So it's not as though he is overlapping specifically. He's giving a little bit more meaning here, and he's using the word to boast or to glory. Boasting, then, is not in and of itself a wrong thing. Boasting isn't the problem. What's the problem is this. It's what you are boasting in. That's what makes it right or wrong. So it's exactly what you think of when you think of boasting, but done in a way that promotes someone else not yourself, namely Jesus and his work. If someone boasts in something, they talk about it, they proclaim it, they talk to others, they can't stop, they kind of tell people how great that thing is. It's no different here. All these things apply to our context when we talk about boasting or glorying in his exaltation. Again, what are we talking about then? If he's supposed to be boasting, what is it that he is boasting in? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What part of a poor Christian's life is his exaltation? Someone who lives poor day to day, just enough to eat, just enough to make it by, what in the world would be part of his life that is his exaltation? James is helping us. He's helping the reader understand that his present circumstance, these things that we experience around us, do not seal our fate as one who is poor in a class as though we're always poor. But when considering ultimate reality, something very different is going on. These poor Christians ought to see past their circumstance and boast or glory in their exalted position in Jesus Christ. Has he not, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Talk about an exalted position. In heaven, raised us up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places with Christ. We then can and ought to boast in this exaltation that only comes from Jesus Christ. Again, making the boasting make sense. There's something actually to boast in. The exaltation that is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, don't be alarmed that the text doesn't say, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation in Christ. Sometimes we get weird about that. Like, could he just please put those words? Like, I don't understand. Is it just exaltation or what does he mean by this? I realize he doesn't supply that extra clarification that we feel like we need, that's the truth is, though, that he doesn't need to do that. Think about who he's writing to. There's no secret meaning to his exaltation. It's not as though these poor Christians were somehow, if they did the right amount of things, that the, that the wealthy people would lift them up and they'd be exalted high, or they'd be given a governorship or something like that. There's no secret meaning here. If you want to say any secret at all, it's the fact that they know Jesus Christ. We know that from our context already. They are of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it is perfectly acceptable for us to supply then that the lowly brother ought to boast in his exaltation in Christ. But now, for the contrast. Look at verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation. We need to ask the same questions, right, as we asked before on the other side of the equation. Who is the rich? What is this idea of his humiliation? And why is that something he should boast in? First one, though, who is the rich? This is a little bit tricky. As we get into this, we realize, especially if you read for a while, you say, 
okay, he's talking about this person, but he was talking about this person. And if you read any scholars or commentators in this, there are two sides here that say that there's something going on. This person is this type of person. This is a different person. Everyone's agreed, right, that, that this person probably is a person of some means. They probably have wealth, money, position, power of some sort. But do you notice what word specifically is missing from verse 10? And the rich in his humiliation. The question comes up, is this a rich brother or is this just like a genuine rich person that's probably an unbeliever? The question is, is this rich person a believer or not? Is it a Christian or one of the world? Who is he talking about? There's a decent case for either one here. Either one could fit into our context. And just to let you know that both grammatically and according to the context that it does work to call this guy either or these, this group of people a group of believers or non-believers that are rich. I want you to know this because there are good scholars on both sides of this, and there's not anything in the gospel that's at stake if you hold to one or the other. So humbly, though, it's our, cho- our, 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 uh, our freedom, but also our responsibility to come to the text and understand what it's saying. And so, as we work through this, it seems best for us to understand the passage specifically as a group of rich Christians. Now, I just told you there was debate about this. I'm going to give you the three reasons why I think it's helpful for us to see this as a Christian and not a non-believer. Number one, the grammar here that's used in the syntax in the verse not only allows, but it even points to the words, the rich, as something that's still connected to the word brother. Now, this is nerdy grammar stuff, all right? So some of you will love this. But the case, the number, the gender of these terms match back to that specific subject, which is brother. So we talk about lowly brother, then we talk about a rich brother. It's almost as though it's supplied it by carrying over that idea. It's the same, it matches up, and so it shows us that it is very possible this is pointing back to the main subject of the brother, the lowly brother. Notice what else is missing, though. It's the verb, right? The verb isn't even here. It is assumed by that first verb in verse 9. We miss to boast in here. It doesn't say, and the rich someone to boast in his humiliation. It carries over that verb from the beginning. My whole point in all this nerdy grammar stuff is to help you understand that it does point out that this is not just an assumption. We hope that it works out that it's a believer. It all does line up that most likely the best way to understand this, the natural reading of the text, is that this is a rich Christian brother. The second reason that I say this is true is remember who he's writing to. He is writing to the church. He is writing to a group that is made up of believers. This church, like ours, is made up of different social strata. There were rich people, there were poor people, all being addressed by this one homily or this written sermon for them. So it seems make to make sense that we call this group of rich people Christians as well. Lastly, and this is again strange to think about, but let's put ourselves on the other side of the camp. Let's say that it, instead it's a non-believer. If you were to take this these group of rich people and say that they were non-believers, then James will have to be using harsh irony to point out that the rich believers should boast in what? In humiliation. I mean, excuse me, the rich non-believers. These people don't even believe in this stuff. And so you have to realize what he's saying here, if that is true, that he's saying, you rich people, you ought to boast in your humiliation. What he's bringing into that context is that they don't understand that in the end, they're going to die and go to hell. That's their humiliation. 
Now, that could be true, and he could be doing that. The problem for us is that we don't see James use irony, and we don't see him use sarcasm very often in the book. This is very harsh, cutting words, harsh rhetoric to be using. It's not characteristic of James, and so I'm not sure that it makes sense for us to use that and pull it in right away here either. So for those reasons, it seems to me especially that what James is referring to here is a group of rich Christian people. Uh, That being said, there's more to this group than just the way that he treated the lowly or the poor, right? He doesn't just say, you know, poor, you're supposed to uh, boast in your exaltation. Rich, you're supposed to boast in your humiliation. Done. The verse goes on. In fact, not only does it finish out in verse 10, but then we have a whole other verse, verse 11, referring to this group. He's not done with them. He begins to elaborate on why the rich brother should boast in his humiliation, which he does not do for the lowly. But before we get into that, let's finish out the first half of this verse. So the rich to boast in his humiliation. What then is his humiliation? If a rich believer is to exalt or boast in his humiliation, what exactly is he talking about? What is he to boast in? It seems strange and countercultural, but the wealthy Christian is instructed by James not to take pride in possessions or position, but rather in his self abasement, like this, this humiliation in identifying with Christ and with Christ's poor people. In other words, he is to boast in what the world would consider humiliating Christ crucified. The normal way for the world to use wealth is to use it to boast upon yourself, to show yourself to be something good and big. Use your goods and your your money and your position to make yourself look good. Kings have done this throughout the ages. Our American presidents have done it. Um, Rich men and women throughout ages have flaunted their wealth to show their greatness. But James prescribes a very different path of boasting, unlike what the world would normally use their money for. He says to boast in what the world considers a state of humiliation. The king who was crucified and did not live up to any of the hype of what the Messiah was supposed to be. He was crucified. How could he be the king? This is the one that they take, we take glory in. He is told to boast in that which is humiliating. Now, when we've looked at this, we see the content of verse 9 and verse 10. But it doesn't take a, 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 you know, someone who's an English teacher to understand that he's using a phrase and then another phrase right away as a formula. He's done something here on purpose. What he's done is he's taken these two ideas, let the low, right? Let the low boast in his exaltation. And then he says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Almost as though they're crossing over here. There's this, this, this concept then of reversal of fortunes. This isn't to pin the righteous against the wicked. Again, if it were to say that, I think James would be a little more clear to show this is righteous people, this is unrighteous people, and this is what they're headed towards. We see that other places in Scripture, obviously, but that's not what he's doing here. So since we see this clear categorical shift and we see him use this formula to cross over and show these things, we ought to clue in. How is he using them? What kind of parallels do we see and what's he trying to state from all this? There's supposed to be something that we're supposed to see. Why is he showing that the rich people 
and the poor people are both supposed to boast in something that seems so opposite to the way that the world sees them in their current state. Why is that? Did you notice what is the same about both groups? Number one, each is to boast. They are to boast. But the second thing, each group is to boast in something that the world cannot see, that makes no sense to them. They are to boast in something that makes no sense to someone who thinks that riches are good and that poor is bad. Someone who doesn't see Jesus Christ as supremely valuable. The world automatically considers the poor man to be in a state of humiliation and the rich man to be in a state of exaltation. But James shows us that this kind of thinking is almost completely backwards. Instead, it seems that James, what he's doing is helping us have the right perspective on ultimate reality, showing us the world as it truly is. This, then, is wisdom. This is an illustration of wisdom. Someone who is wise obeys this command to boast in that which the world cannot understand or see. The person that the world sees as poor and lowly should boast in his exaltation. Why? Because of Christ. The person then that the world sees as rich and powerful should boast in his humiliation. Why? Because of Christ. It's the same answer. The same reason why both people would boast in their opposite seemingly to what the world says is that the crux of that is Jesus Christ. He is the one at the center of this. The passage highlights two worldly categories of believer, lowly and high or, or rich. Again, I say worldly because this is not how God sees his children. Verses 9 and 10 highlight these two worldly categories of believers that are both falling among various trials. Does that sound familiar, like verse 2? Both of these categories of people are amongst various trials and are called then to respond by glorying or boasting. Each group must see his situation not through the eyes of the world. It's so easy to see around us and to compare ourselves on the stuff that makes sense over here. But rather, what is supposed to happen, they are to see themselves in light of wisdom that comes only from God. How do you get that wisdom? We covered this in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men singularly. He is devoted and does this generously without reprimand. To do so in faith, then, is how this person is called upon. Each group must see the situation not through the eyes of the world's wisdom, but in light of the wisdom of God. This wisdom is the needed perspective to work through the testing of your faith in Christ. So now we can see that our passage is not a new unrelated, separate section from the first two, but rather it's an illustration of what it looks like to receive and live by the wisdom of God. In this age, when one is going through the trial of either poverty or the trial of wealth. But you'll notice that we've only covered verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. So we probably should look at the rest of verse 10 and into 11. I stated earlier that as we look up at the second group, the rich, there's more to them than just simply lowly people, you should go boast in your exaltation. Rich people, ex uh, boast in your humiliation. End. The verse doesn't end there. 
And there's a reason for that. Again, we showed he's going to begin to elaborate and why the rich brother should boast in his humiliation. He does not do this for the lowly brother. He is simply talking towards the second group, the rich believer. Why? We should notice and say, he put a structure together, he showed us this, but then he spends time talking to the second brother, not the first brother. Why? Why did he take extra time to help the rich brothers see that they, they, they need to be boasting in their humiliation? Let's be honest for a minute. If we all were given the choice, would you choose the trial of poverty or the trial of wealth? I think that we all know what we would choose. So it doesn't seem as though, it's almost laughable that we think that wealth is some sort of a trial. I get that. I get that. And probably almost everyone who sits in here this morning, Matt pointed out this morning, all of us live in the lap of luxury compared to what the world has lived through in the ages before. That's not my point to make you feel bad about that. (laughs) I don't care about that. What's important for us to see here is that wealth is still a trial. Let me explain why. I believe that James is of the same mind as Jesus. He's very familiar with what Jesus says about money. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I didn't make that last part up. Like He puts that on the, on the tails of talking about serving two masters. The first thing that Jesus uses as an explanation here, or an illustration, is to serve God and money. Jesus understood how difficult it was to have material wealth and to be truly devoted to God. Eventually, the double-minded man would not be able to hold to Christ because he holds to his riches. That is why I believe, this is anecdotal, not from Scripture, I believe that a lot of our American church thinks they're believers, but they hold tightly to their riches. They do not hold singularly with a genuine heart to Christ and Christ alone because of the trial of riches. I think that James is following Jesus' way of thinking. The most common source of double-mindedness, we covered this as well, is the love of money. It's so easy to come in and steal your heart away. You cannot serve God and money. And so this is very real. This is a very real trial that has your soul on the line. It will test your faith. And so it is on you and me to listen to this and respond like James instructs us to. Already he has told us then to respond by asking for wisdom, that we would count it as joy, that we would then see these things and obey, and he would use us to test and work our faith out so that we might be complete or whole, lacking in nothing. And so... Don't think of this lightly, brothers and sisters. Let's read the rest of verse 10 and 11. Because he's going to give you a reason why you ought not boast in the things around you. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Why should the rich brother boast in his humiliation? 
Because the truth is that every human being will die, taking nothing with them. But James knows that there's a better way to explain this. He's a good preacher. And as such, he shows these things in word pictures. We already saw him do this uh, with the analogy of the waves and the sea and the churning water. Remember this? And he talks about how it swirls and blows and it crashes and moves from here to there. Helps us understand this double-minded person who's not firmly trusting the one true God, but trusts this thing and that thing and this thing over here. He's like swirling water. Now James turns to an example to show us the frailty of human existence. In the springtime in Palestine, a flurry of beautiful wildflowers sprout, strengthen, grow tall, and blossom on the mountainsides. A very short amount of time this happens, and I'm not sure if any of you like the outdoors. I love the outdoors. But there's nothing quite as beautiful as seeing and, and fragrant and, and vital, all these things as a meadow jam-packed with flowers, these wildflowers. Maybe they're all the same color. Maybe they're several different colors. I know some of you in here are taking your Claritin out right now. Just the thought of that, you're like, I need to premedicate. This is not good. The scene is one, though, that we'd all recognize for its beauty and its vitality and so seeming so meaningful. But these beautiful delicate works of art are not hardy. They do not last. They are here today, but when the sun rises and scorches it with its heat, it falls away. The flowers die. They wither. They fall. And they are not as beautiful as they once were. All the color drains from the flowers. And where do they return? To the dust where they came from. What an apt description of us. James will use this well-known pattern in the natural world to remind the rich people that all men are subject to the way of the world. Death comes to all men. This isn't, by the way, this isn't just James' clever use of this. He's drawing from Psalm 103, 15 through 16. He's drawing from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. And even Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, are saying the same thing. That man is like grass, like the flower of a field. He springs up, the scorching heat, the wind, the sun breaks it down. It goes right back to the dust where it came from. It does not stand forever. So when James uses this, we're reminded that as of old, man has never been able to give himself eternal life. They've never been able to live up to their possessions or their position or their wealth. The rich man's material possessions and his position cannot bring him eternal life. He, can, he can't take his possessions with him. However much those pharaohs in Egypt wanted to put in their pyramid all their stuff and all their slaves and all their goods and all their gold, it's still there today. Now it's in some museums, but no one took it to the afterlife. It's still here. They couldn't take it with them. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James knows well the allure of possessions, wealth, and earthly status. But he calls the rich believers to boast, not in the things that all normal rich, rich people will boast in, but to boast in what the world would consider humiliating. 
Jesus Christ, who called himself king, who was killed, dragged away, beaten, ripped naked down, and put on a cross for all to see. And so James encourages the rich Christian to have the proper perspective in a world of alluring wealth and power. He encourages him instead to boast in what is humiliating, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This brings us back to the context, right? We can see now that this topic of the rich and the poor really does connect with these opening paragraphs. The command that he gives here to the poor and the rich man gives us an illustration of various trials that James offers wisdom upon. He says and offers wisdom to help believers through this. The wisdom that only comes from God. And what he is telling them is he is giving them a specific command to do what? To boast. This is a strange command while you're going through various trials. The rich man and the poor man are both experiencing various trials. In this case, the rich man's trials are more difficult. And thus, all this explanation about life and wealth and being so temporal and fragile. Now, we have finished going through this text specifically, but I think it's important for us to ask the question. In all of this, what is the imperative for us? What are we supposed to do with this information? Is this simply about finding which category we are in, whether it's the rich or whether it's the poor, and then we're supposed to gain that perspective and live the rest of our life understanding, okay, now I'm supposed to glory in, oh yeah, humiliation. Oh, I'm supposed to glory in exaltation. Now I got it. The command here, don't, don't miss, the, the, this, it's not just about perspective, but it's also to boast, that we are called to boast. As we have looked at these two categories of boasting, exaltation and humiliation, what are we talking about? More importantly, who are we talking about? Jesus Christ is our only boast. We sang it already this morning. Did you think in all this we were going to talk about economic status? <laughs> That's not the message here this morning for anyone and everyone around us. That's not the message. The message, rather, if you are poor, boast in Christ. If you are rich, boast in Christ. There is no one who is exempt from boasting in the God who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2 shows us Jesus who is a Savior in humiliation. But he doesn't stay dead and he doesn't stay humiliated. God raises him to a highly exalted place, a king in exaltation. We are a people of humiliation. That's the theology of the cross that we've talked about several times before. That our Savior endured for us the cross and humiliation. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was humiliated in the eyes of the world. Listen, I'm going to read Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. We are then a people of humiliation. But we are also a people of exaltation. Let me continue to read from the same passage, Philippians 2, verse 9. It says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our Savior and King did not stay dead, but rose again. He is highly exalted. We are the people of this King. Our boast is not in our wealth, or on the other side, our ability to make it as a poor person. That is not our boast. Our boast is in Jesus Christ and him alone. It doesn't change whatever social strata you're from. Christ is our only boast. And to think any other way, then you've totally missed it. Jesus Christ is your only boast. So brothers and sisters, do you boast in Jesus Christ? Or is he simply a part of our weekly routine? Do you ever show people your stuff, your ideas, your house, your car, your lifestyle that you live, whether in real life or Instagram? Do you ever boast in something other than Jesus Christ? I do. Let us then repent of our own idolatry and see our Lord as better and more beautiful than any of these things around us. Whether it's our own pride in making it as a poor person, or our wealth that shows off how great we are. Let our boast be in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, teach us to boast in you. We want it to be true that we don't boast in our gifts, that we don't boast in our abilities to be tough, but rather we want our boast to be in someone else, in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, showing both that we ought to, every person ought to boast in humiliation and in exaltation because Christ went the way of the cross and you highly exalted him. May we trust you and you alone cause us to boast in you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.